All right, everyone, let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank you so much for your love for us. and We are glad to be here, knowing that you are with us in a special way to minister to us, to strengthen us, Lord, to bring us to trusting submission to your word and to your... And as we open up your word, I pray that you would encourage us, Father, to to know it and to internalize it and to uh, to obey. We thank you. We love you. And I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that understand that we may rejoice as your word goes forth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, we have uh, selected scriptures today. The title of our sermon is Tithing the Unexpected blessing. And it is a blessing. Now it's interesting reflecting on this subject of preaching today. I don't even know how far we're going to get. I took a lot of notes. It's kind of weird talking about this. Um, I've been preaching for 12 years, and this is the first time I've ever talked about tithing and offering and money. I'm like, Jonathan, what took you so long? I don't know what it is, but it's one of those things. But Hey, as they say, no time like the present. So we'll we'll talk about this, and we've uh, we've been uh, discussing generosity. And so when the topic comes up to teach about tithing and offering, it's it's less from a uh, a standpoint of wanting to stand up here and rebuke all of you for being stingy. It really <laughs> it really comes from a desire to know what the Word of God says about this topic but it's also a desire to see God in a clearer light. When I am up here, my responsibility primarily is to have you see the Lord Jesus Christ put on majestic display in all of His saving grace and power. And we can see that even when it comes to blessing and tithing and offering. And so our starting point when we talk about tithing is not tithing. Our, start, our starting point is generosity. Our starting point is giving and why we, we should do that in the first place. Right? In all these subjects, no matter what we cover, we ask by what standard, right? What is our starting point? What are we leaning into when we're covering any topic in particular? And so our starting point on this is to say that God is generous. God is richly generous. God provides all of our needs. God is good. And all the other things that go along with that. And then, of course, Jeremy, thank you, covered me last Lord's Day and talked about generosity human generosity how we are able to be how how we are able to be generous toward one another but we're generous toward one another in light of what god has done otherwise we have no reason why not just eat and drink get all you can live for live for the moment for tomorrow we die if god were not generous that should that is what our conclusion is but god is generous and god is good so we are going to see what the Bible says this morning about tithing, and I realize that this is a very, this is a very controversial <laughs> uh, a topic. I don't care. Um, lots of things that we talk about from Scripture have, have, a, have a certain amount of controversy with them, a generous amount of controversy, you could say, and uh, we discuss them at length. We dive in deeply to the Lord's Word so that we uh, can understand not only as individuals, but as a church body as to what He is, um, what he is saying to us. And then, of course, by application, what he expects from us. And so, we want to start with that very fact. God is generous, but when it comes to tithing, we want to make this more specific. God owns everything. That's one thing we have to understand. The money you give, whether it's through Zelle, or through check, or through Bitcoin, no matter how you give, no matter what way you give, everything that is transferred belongs to God. He owns everything. We are merely stewards. We are merely managers. But that is our initial thought. Right? And it keeps us, among other things, from saying, what, I'm going to give my money? We like to talk about our hard-earned money and the labor we did. And there is a certain truth to that. But when it comes down to it, you are dirt. You are from the ground. You are human. And everything is owed to God. You owe God your very life, your very breath. He has a claim on you that cannot be denied. Even all your stuff, right? Whether it's a 
house in the woods, your sweet car, right? your sweet ride, whatever other possessions you accumulate, it's not really yours. It all belongs to God. And so that is a helpful standpoint from which to look at tithing. And so we can ask ourselves, what are, how are we, we don't ask ourselves, how can we steward my, my money or our money? It's how can we steward or manage God's money? And so with that, there are lots of different takes on tithing, even in reform camps. There is some, there are some who say, yes, there is a lot of continuity from old to new. There are some in reform camps who, who, who say, oh no, all of that is past with the, uh, with the, uh, abrogation of the old covenant. We're in the new now. We have a different take on tithing. You know, and that, and that leads to why people don't tithe, don't tithe at all or don't give at all or hardly give at all. You know, there's, there's many reasons for this. Even jotted down a few of them. I think one of the biggest hangups people have with giving is simply the privatization of religion. We live in a very pietistic culture. My, my life lived before the Lord is private, right? It's just me and Jesus. The Lord knows my heart. I don't have to disclose what I give if I give it all. It's none of your business what I give. Might be something worth rethinking. Sometimes we go as far to say, well, if we put a number on it, it's legalistic, right? It's legalism. Any, we kind of read some, unfortunately, any kind of continuity from the Old Testament as, oh, that's legalism. Or we automatically put that away because we are under grace. We are not under law. And we'll get, we'll hit that later. I think some people struggle with the fact that Tithing is not explicitly, explicitly word for word, chapter and verse, commanded in the New Testament, especially when it comes to a particular number. I think we just want those stats. We just want numbers. And it's, and it's kind of interesting because on one hand, we don't want the command because it might be legalistic, but on the other hand, we just want those details. It's like we want to know exactly what we're supposed to do explicitly and not by implication. And what's also interesting is because it's not explicitly command, commanded in the New Testament, our, our natural inclination, sadly, is to underestimate the blessing of tithing or to give under 10%. Another big one, and we'll cover this text this morning in some detail, comes from 2 Corinthians 9, 6-7. It's called the, the cheerful giver passage, right? God loves, God loveth a cheerful giver. So we are to give cheerfully. And sometimes this is under the heading of grace giving. We're not commanded a particular number to give, so we, we do something called grace giving. We're not under law, we're under grace, and so grace giving means, oh, we just determine what we're going to give, don't put a number on it, don't put a goal on it, and we just give cheerfully, right? It's the heart that matters. Sometimes it's financial pressures. I mean, yeah, taxation is theft. Property taxation is piracy, says I. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Let's make sure you're paying attention, right? We don't like it when we go in labor because we believe, as the Word of God says, the worker is worthy of his wages. And so when we work, we want to receive what we have worked for. But instead, it seems like every time there's a transaction, right, you get you work, you get paid by your employer. This is why I encourage entrepreneurship. Be your own boss. Make more money. Give more to the kingdom. See, that's how it works. But you're Employer gives you money, and you know what happens? The government comes in and scoops them out in the way of payroll taxes. Right? And then the government comes along, and you pay what was it, FICA. You, you have taxes taken out. And then you go and you spend that money, and the person that takes your money has to pay taxes on the money they take in. You pay a sales tax for all, all your products. I remember back in the day, living in, living in California when Arnold Schwarzenegger was running for, for governor, because our previous governor was just, he was terrible. And Arnold wasn't much better, but, but his, his political platform was, you wake up in the morning, you're taxed. You go to this thing, you're taxed. Tax, 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 tax. Every, and everyone is sick of being taxed. Taxed to death, right? That's where the Tea Party came from. Taxed enough already. We, and, and, and yet, for some reason, those folks were written off as, as, uh, as greedy and racist to boot. You just can't win. Right. So due to financial pressures, people are hesitant to tithe. It's like, oh man, I got a whole lot of this cash that I have because I have expenses and they seem to be mounting daily. And we all feel that pressure today, especially with what is colloquially known as Bidenflation. Things are just getting more expensive. 
and wages are not being raised in proportion with those expenses. And so because of that, there's a hesitancy to tithe. And I say there is something, there is something noble about this because we are told in scripture, yes, we have to, at first, first and foremost, we, we are to provide for our own, right? And so we think, oh man, what if that comes down to giving my tithe, my offering, my first fruits, or putting food on the table? That's a real strain for some people. I think some people also are just very stingy. They don't care one way or the other. They really believe that church is all about what they can get rather than how God has equipped them to give and to edify the body, even through their finances. Some people are just stingy. They're greedy and they work for their money and they don't want to give any of it up. And then finally, a lot of reasons here, uh, people just don't know what Scripture says on the matter. Even though Scripture says quite a bit about giving and generosity, some people just don't know what the Bible has to say. And so often the the refrain is, well, that's in the Old Testament, that's law, putting a number is legalistic, not explicitly in the New. And I think even most tragically, whenever a pastor talks about giving, especially about giving and anticipating God's provision and abundant blessing, because we believe in divine abundance, we believe God is generous, we've already settled that. But when we talk about that from the pulpit, we are often accused of pushing some kind of prosperity gospel. And we understand that you may give generously, and God may not give you something akin to Scrooge McDuck's money bin, where you can just dive off a diving board into your piles of golden cash, which would hurt, by the way. We understand it doesn't always happen like that. But we understand that God is generous. And that God has prospered us to a degree. And so in light of that, we should encourage one another to be generous and give. And it's hard because of these phony televangelists who are constantly on TV asking for money, right? They hear the Spirit telling them, someone out there, someone out there, the Lord is telling you to write a thousand dollars. You don't know who I am, and you know that I'm probably going to spend this money on my fancy new Learjet but the Lord is telling you to give me $1,000. I mean, you get 10,000 people to do that. Think of, the, think of the cool plane you can buy, the sweet jet you can fly in, right? And people are leery of that. So it's very difficult to talk about money. But here's the preacher's, here's the preacher's plan, right? We talk about the things that God talks about, right? That's what we want to do. We don't want to talk about the things that man talks about unless we're just exposing them in light of the gospel, right? But God talks about money, so we want to see money and giving and tithing the way that God sees it. So let's see how far we can get today. So origins. Let's talk about origins of giving and tithing. Tithing specifically. Now remember, tithing is a very deliberate turn. It means one-tenth. Right? I was actually, I was, of all people, I was listening to Dave Ramsey on this, and he, was, and he, is, a, he is a staunch supporter of, of tithing, interestingly enough. And he was sort of poking fun at the idea that you could tithe 5%, as many people do. And he's like, you can't, tithe, you can't give 10% of, of 20, right? You can't tithe the 20th. Tithe means 10%. So we have to understand that in times of that. Tithing, um, again, in the agrarian society, tithing your, your certain resources, certain uh, crop yields, we'll get into that. But today, it's typically money, right? So we have to erase from our heads this notion that we can time our or tithe our time, right? There is no such thing as tithing your time. Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't want to give, so I'm going to donate my time. Guys, that's not a tithe, so stop acting like it is. He's talking about your financial resources. So let's just be honest with ourselves. So tithing begins in the Old Testament. A tithe was a basic requirement of the law, one of which they were to give 10% of crops they grew and the livestock they raised, right? They didn't have a, they didn't have money printers back then. They didn't have a federal reserve just printing money like it was going out of style. And it is quickly going out of style. But certain resources were commanded to be given in by, by the 10%. So write these texts down. There's Leviticus 2730, Numbers 1826, Deuteronomy 1424, and then 2 Chronicles 31 5. And, it is, it is thought, and there's heavy discussion on what the exact number, exact percentage of this was, but the OT law required what could be called multiple tithes. Multiple tithes. There wasn't just one as we would, as we would reckon today. One of the tithes was for the Levites. One was for the temple and the feasts. And there was also a poor tithe. And of course, 
that should resonate with us today because true and undefiled religion is looking after widows and orphans in their distress. So there is continuity there. And that's one thing I want you guys to keep in mind as you're listening to this, is the continuity between the old and the new. And I believe the New Testament is very deliberate with that continuity. So there were tithing commands, and those tithes were designated toward a particular purpose. And of course, one of those was to take care of the Levites. One was to feed the priests. Remember, the priests did not have a typical inheritance as the rest of the children of Israel did. Their inheritance, as God said, was the Lord. And so it stood to reason that in the law there would be provisions for those who served in the tabernacle and then the temple as Israel grew and flourished as a nation. All that to say, the total number percentage-wise that one would give out is thought to have been around 22 to 23%. Depends on who you ask. But that's pretty much... you know. Consulting certain scholars, certain pastors, the number seems to come right around uh, 22 to 23% and change. And so this met the needs of the priests, the, those who didn't have anything. And of course, there was a, you know, a temple and the feast. So you could call that a party tax. There were certain times of the year where, the, where Israel would gather together and they would celebrate as a nation. And of course, you would put money aside for that. Sometimes that would often require a journey and you needed the the funding and the resources for that. It was interesting. I was consulting uh, gotquestions.org, interesting resource for uh, questions of the theological kind. But it says this, and I quote, After the death of Jesus Christ fulfilled the law, the New Testament nowhere commands or even recommends that Christians submit to a legalistic tithe system. And I thought, wow, that's the, that's the, that, that's the appraisal of that? Let me tell you something. The tithing system was not legalistic. Legalism, by its definition, is that one can be counted righteous before God apart from the finished work of Christ. That one can be reckoned righteous by keeping the law. Even under this system, one would not be reckoned righteous by his ability to pay tithes. So it's not, so the system, the old, the OT system is not legalistic at all. In fact, you could say in some sense it was very gracious that the Lord gave them a number. He revealed, he revealed to them by His Word what He required of them so their needs, their various needs were taken care of. And I don't believe these numbers are arbitrary at all. They are very deliberate and they are sustainable. And of course, remember, don't forget that ultimate eternal truth. God owns everything and these are His people and He is faithful to take care of His people. That's the kind of God Israel served, and that is the kind of God we serve today. God has not changed in His character. Read it in Hebrews. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we should not see at any point that this system, that this tithing system, whether OT or NT, as legalistic. Grace does not render the Old Testament law system as legalistic. Don't forget that. So there are, there are various views on this. Talk about the Old Testament, that system. And so we would say, okay, we understand that they're under that system, but we don't have provided to us in the, in, in the New Testament particular numbers. So what do we do? So the first view I'm going to present is the one that I subscribe to, the one that I personally, the, personally practice. Okay? In 1 Peter chapter 2, and this is a fulfillment of Exodus 19, the church, Jew and Gentile, is called a kingdom of priests. So we can understand at least two things from that verse. That we are a kingdom, we, 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 as the church we are part of a kingdom, that is the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we represent a priesthood. Not just any old priesthood, but a royal priesthood. Now, with the Mosaic priesthood, there were certain financial obligations. There were tithes that were required. And so we would ask, okay, are there requirements under this so-called royal priesthood? I would submit to you, yes. I would submit to you, yes. Now, what is this royal priesthood otherwise known as? Well, we are not part of the Aaronic, the Aaronic or um, Old Testament Mosaic priesthood. We are under what is called the Melchizedekian priesthood. The Melchizedekian priesthood. Now, what's interesting is that we learn about this priesthood before there is even a Mosaic priesthood, right? The Melchizedekian priesthood precedes, historically, 
the Mosaic or Aaronic priesthood. So in Genesis 14, you don't have to turn there, but here is what the Scripture says. Genesis 14, chapter 17. Then after his return from the defeat of Kedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of, of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. So we understand Melchizedek was a priest. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And so all we get after that is, he gave him a tenth of all. Now who gave whom a tenth of all? Abraham gave Melchizedek, king of Salem, high priest, a tenth of all he had. That is what the scripture takes time to describe. You think, well, of all the things that could have been mentioned, it was that Melchizedek was a high priest and Abraham gave him a tenth and Melchizedek blessed him. Now we read about this priesthood later on in Psalm 110. This is, I think, what is called the most often quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament, right? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, I'll make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So in verses 4 through 7 says this, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And he's, this is a messianic psalm. He's speaking to what Christ will eventually fulfill, this position that he will come to eventually occupy. He says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now note, at this point in history, the Aaronic priesthood, the Mosaic priesthood, has been firmly established. Right? It is an ongoing priesthood. But he is talking now about a different priesthood. The Messiah will not be according to the order of Aaron. He will be according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations and he will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So this high priest that we are to look forward to, fulfilled in the, by, by the Lord Jesus Christ, will also experience a victory that he will judge among the nations and fill them with corpses. So we move from there, noticing how Scripture is tracking this. So this is not something that just randomly comes in Genesis 14. We don't really know what to do with it. Now, listen to Hebrews 7. So you, you ladies out there who attended the Bible study in Hebrews should be familiar with this. So I, I don't need to go super in-depth verse by verse with this passage, but let's just see what Hebrews 7 says. It says, For this Melchizedek, going from Hebrews 6, right? For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the, of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils. So he is clear to mention that. In light, the point is, in light of Melchizedek's priesthood, Abraham apportioned a tenth of all his spoils. Was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. So there is plenty of robust discussion and scholarly disagreement among many godly men as to who this Melchizedek exactly was. What is it? Was it a theophany? Was it a Christophany? Was he simply a shadow and a type pointing to a reality that would be fulfilled by Jesus Christ? It's hard to be conclusive on that. But what we do know is that Melchizedek does point to this reality of a different priesthood, an eternal priesthood, a royal priesthood of which we are a part. He's made like the Son of God. He remains a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of, his, of the choicest spoils. There it is again. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who receive the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people that is, from their brethren. Although these are descended from Abraham, but the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. So that's what we understand. Melchizedek was, was greater than Abraham, which is saying quite a bit, because Abraham is the patriarch, the father of the faithful. And yet, there was a man. Who is he? He's Melchizedek. He was greater. And so, the lesser gave tenth, a tenth to the greater. And now, we know, based on the word, that Christ is the high priest of the order of Melchizedek. And so, the conclusion is, 
we render under this royal priesthood 10% to Christ. Christ is our high priest. Christ is our king. So the reasoning is very simple in this regard. I think what many people are unsatisfied with this, however, because it's not, again, it's not explicit. There is this issue that is taken up with the fact that it is not explicit. However, I believe implicitly we have enough truth here from Scripture, especially considering this, this transfer of priesthood to the people of God that we under Christ, and especially this mention of Abraham giving a tenth to Melchizedek that we can establish pretty firmly that yes, we tithe under the authority and priesthood of Jesus Christ. And I think one thing we have to understand here as well is that this demonstrates to us the easy yoke and light burden of Christ. He is not, he is not a tyrant. He is, he is generous. He asks from us merely a tenth. Which kind of puts into perspective this this God complex that our government has. The government already asks for more than a tenth. All that is, guys, is the government trying to play God. It, the government is asking more from us than Christ himself is asking from us. And it's amazing that as one's, think about it, as one's income goes up, up, up the, more, the greater percentage that you are charged, the more of it the government has declared by executive fiat that they have a right to take. And if you have a problem with it, then there's, then you're a bad person, bare minimum. There's something wrong with you. Which is, which is terrible because it stifles the, the Christian's ability to be generous. To reflect the very character of his master who gives to us exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. That opportunity is stifled. And so even in light of that, one, we obey, we give our tithes and offerings, and especially, right, we trust the Lord. Did you think that we would give apart from faith? Did you think that giving to the work of the ministry is merely about numbers on a page? Well, not at all. We remember that God owns everything. And so we give in reference not only to what He has given us, but to who He is, to His very character, to His very nature, to His very kingship and, and, and governance over our lives. So going back to Melchizedek, listen to what Gary North says. He gave Abraham bread and wine. He blessed him. Then he accepted Abraham's tithe. He did not have to beg Abraham to give what was lawfully his. Hebrews argues that Jesus Christ is the true Melchizedek. Jesus Christ does not beg. So he argues that tithing is grounded in the Abrahamic covenant, not the Mosaic. So to somehow relegate tithing to law and legalism and then therefore dismiss it makes zero sense. So that is, that is the background, that is the platform of the what we would call the Melchizedekian tithe. That's where we get 10% from. We get it primarily from Melchizedek, not from Moses. And so, as we move on, I want to talk about another text this morning. Because I kind of, not, not that I'm trying to pigeonhole you, but I think that sometimes we use certain texts in order to absolve ourselves from the responsibility of giving. And I think one of those texts that is, that is misapplied and misused comes from 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 7. That is our cheerful giver passage. That is our grace giving passage. So if you're not there, please turn there. We're going to go over this text. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. So this was our Scripture reading this morning, but let's let's get to the uh, the nuts and bolts of this. Let's start at verse five. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift, so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Okay. Now this I say: he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So that those those couple of verses are seen as basically the, the doctrinal proof text or proof passage to what underlies new covenant giving, or as we say, grace giving. And so if that's the case, then why put a number on it? Let's just determine in our hearts what we are to give 
And let's not give under compulsion or begrudgingly. God loves a cheerful giver, right? Let's, let's give with gladness of heart. So we can glean at least that from it. Okay. So I think there's a lot going on in this passage. But, he, but the first thing he says is this. And we see that this is giving to the church, right? To this, basically this one storehouse known as the church. He says, now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So we just kind of have to take Paul at his word here. But there are anticipated results based on how one gives. And I, and I would, and I would caution you, uh, to beware of over-spiritualizing a text like this. I think we love to do that as New Covenant saints. We spiritualize things. Oh, if we give, if we sow sparingly, we will reap. That, that's, that, that's, that's spiritual sowing and reaping, right? It's all spiritual that Paul is talking about, except that Paul's not talking about that. He's talking about actual tithing. He's talking about actual giving to the church. And he is saying, here is, here is the expected result. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Again, if you're stingy in your giving, if you sow in a stingy manner or in a miserly manner, what is the expectation? You will reap sparingly. The harvest will be very little. Now, I would say, I, I would, I would, uh, I would admit that yes, if you give of your finances, there will be, I think, I think that what's in view here is there's two kinds of abundance, right? There's two kinds of provision from the Lord. Yes, one will be material. The Lord will return that blessing. He will provide your needs, even if you have to give sacrificially on occasion. And I don't think that's the main message. I don't think that's the main message of this text is to give sacrificially, by the way. Right. So I think there's something spiritual in view. I mean, I think if you are able to you know, let's give the, um, the elder illustration, right? If the church gives generously so that it's, so that it's elders and laborers in the word are provided for, that prevents us from having to get a bunch of side hustles so that we can pay primary attention to the ministry of the word. We can, we can study more. We can evangelize more. We can be among our flock more. That becomes our, we have a limited obligation in terms of making an income and providing for our family just like everyone else is supposed to do. So that would that that would be what you could call a a bountiful harvest. You give generously, there will be a generous or bountiful reaping. And it's it, it's it's weird to me that so many Christians struggle with that idea or say that it's legalism. That we struggle with this idea and the and the idea of sowing and reaping is very very plain in scripture as a man reaps so will he so do, as a man sows so does he reap i think that's a very clear maxim presented in scripture and so paul says this is the same when it comes to your giving and then he goes on to say each one must do as he has purposed in his heart not grudgingly or under compulsion for god loves a cheerful giver and so I think one question that comes up, if we are truly taking this as grace giving, right, then why is grace, why does grace giving typically fade into stinginess? Or I would even say less than a tithe, less than 10%. Why, I mean, shouldn't that be a strange question in all of our minds? Why does grace automatically mean less? Why does grace automatically mean a reduction? Why does grace automatically mean withholding? Especially when it comes to grace, we see an abundance of grace expressed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Right? In the person and work of Jesus Christ, as John 1 tells us, we receive grace upon grace. Right? One blessing after another. So I would argue that grace should make us inclined to give more, to be generous. And that that is the determination of our heart. Not to withhold, not to be stingy, not to make excuses, not to use grace in a subtle way to absolve us from obligations toward the church and by extension the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. It should make us generous. We shouldn't view grace as something that lets us off the hook. We talked about that at length when it comes to marriage. If we are fellow heirs of the grace of life, why are we as husbands and wives being nasty to each other? Why are we making no effort to bless one another? Why aren't we being faithful to one another? Why aren't we considering how we can 
love each other as man and wife. Why should grace make us lazy? Why should grace make us stingy? Why should grace make us unattentive? When it should do precisely the opposite. Noting all of the promises that we have. Think about what we have in the New Covenant. We have better promises. We have a better word. We have a better priesthood. I mean, read the book of Hebrews. The theme of Hebrews is better. We have better everything in Christ. So shouldn't that make us better givers? I'll submit that theological argument to you. Shouldn't that make us more inclined, more prone to give above and beyond what we normally think as an appropriate number? That should be the logic of grace giving, that we would give even more. God has been gracious. He's always been gracious, and His grace abounds most explicitly through His Son. And so as Christians, we should desire to put that grace on display to put on display what Christ has done for us and how he continues to minister to us as our great high priest and in the sending of his Holy Spirit as he equips us and empowers us for the spread of the gospel. So I think even under the, if you want to argue for grace giving, if you want to argue for new covenant, new testament giving, for cheerful giving, I think it's easier, far easier to make the argument that a tithe is merely a baseline. Tithe is merely a baseline. And that we should use that as an excuse to give more rather than an excuse to give less because we're giving in reference to God's abundant generosity. Right? Guys, we have to understand, we have to remind ourselves too that, and sometimes frequently, that grace, this idea of grace and being under the new covenant of grace does not free us from obligations. I would argue that grace strengthens our obligations. Grace clarifies our obligation. Grace frees us to meet those obligations and then some. Even think about what Paul says, Romans 1, 13 through 14. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. He is under obligation. You know what the word obligation means there? It means obligation. He's just, he's got to do it. He is obligated. And that is not legalistic. That is not law. That does not mean, he, you know, it, I know it doesn't strike us as very gracie. <laughs> but even Paul would understand that it is grace itself that strengthens and clarifies our obligations toward one another and exalts our obligations. And so he says, so for my part, I am eager, right? Note there, note that obligation and his eagerness, his willing heart, are not at odds toward one another. Sometimes we think that mistakenly. That if we are commanded to do something, that somehow that takes the, that just rips the heart and soul out of it. Not at all. He says, I have an obligation, so for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. We have more instruction in 1 Corinthians 16, chapter, uh, verse 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also on the first, first day of every week. Each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. So that's another, that's another rule for giving. Right? As you may prosper, and the Lord may just really come along and just prosper you. Right? So that you are able to give even above a tithe, above 10%. That's a very good rule. How many of you have even prayed to the Lord? Lord, prosper me so I can be a blessing to others. Lord, give me an abundance so I can be a blessing to fellow Christians, so I can, in, so I can invest in the kingdom. I think Christians, there's just something that just bothers me. It's bothered me for years. How Christians just seem to be afraid of money. Like afraid of prosperity. Afraid to, again, afraid to put our... <laughs> Put on our big boy pants in the morning and go and labor. Go out there and just crush it and make good money so that we can be a blessing to others. I think we assume that, oh, if we make a lot of money, I'm going to have to just, I'm going to, I'm, you know, my heart is so depraved, right? Forget that you have a new heart. My heart is so depraved and greedy and selfish that the Lord blesses me. Surely, surely I'm going to buy a really expensive vehicle, right? And I'm just going to 
eat steak and lobster every day for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And I'm going to keep it all to myself. I'm going to buy my sweet Ford F-250 with the lift kit and the trimmer package. I'm going to go, you know, rolling up everywhere, bragging about how much money I have. Stop assuming that. As a Christian, you are a new creation. You have new desires. And one of those desires is to give to the growth of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is built in to you as a new man. So stop being afraid of what God gives you out of his own generosity. Instead, turn around and use it to be generous. Reflect his glory and his grace and goodness and give in proportion to how God has given to you. That is grace giving. Grace giving, grace giving asks, what opportunity do I have to give? Not, oh no, what do I have to give? What, what, what am I obligated, right? I mean, that's what Paul describes as grudging. Grudging refers, refers to pain, grief, sorrow. This is the same word used in Luke 22.45. Speaking of the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, they were overwhelmed. They were, fell asleep from pain, grief, and sorrow. Under compulsion. This word's a little trickier, but can refer to distress. Like distress upon the land. It can speak of necessity. And so, sometimes we reason, see, not under compulsion. That means there's no imperative or command for giving to the New Testament Christian. So, of course, what do we do with this? And as I alluded to earlier, I do not believe that compulsion is the equivalent for the word command. I think compulsion refers to an inner heart attitude. Remember, the commands of God are good. They are for our good. They are not legalistic. Let me give you an example. God commands me to be faithful to my wife. God commands me to show marital fidelity to my lovely wife. God's telling me to do something. That's a command. Do I have to do it? Do I, am I required? Is God demanding that I be faithful to my wife? Answer, yes. God demands it of me, and rightly so. That is a good demand. That is a good command. So that means I have to do it. But the difference between that and it being under compulsion, me receiving that command or obeying that command under compulsion, is that I am not faithful to my wife under duress. I am not faithful to my wife because I am terrified of what will happen if not. I am faithful because I want to be faithful. I am faithful because the Lord has put it in my heart to be a faithful husband. Same thing with giving. We give because we want to. But we, but that doesn't negate a command to give. We are faithful because we delight in the command of God. I delight in God's command to marital fidelity and because I love my wife. Not because I'm under duress or because I'm coerced or guilted into it. That's totally not what Paul is saying. So we can obey, we can receive a command and not, and obey that command and not do it under compulsion. Do we worship God only under compulsion? No. We worship God because we delight in our God. We praise Him because He is worthy of our praise. And it's really interesting in light of this passage, and I've found this in many people, is that when it comes to the, the sparing, the sowing sparingly and reaping sparingly, that that, come, that comes from people who primarily don't give, or they give very little. And, and unfortunately, many who give very little are typically the ones who want, who, who, who are always talking about the problems of the church. They are always bringing in, I heard laughter there because you know it's true. The ones who are the stingiest are the ones, typically, you will find, who are complaining the most. Who want a church in their image. And if that's you, take this as a gentle rebuke. If you're not contributing to the church, keep your mouth shut. You're not invested. It is the tightest fists and the biggest mouths that often walk hand in hand. It's a sad state of affairs if that's how a church really is. But he says God loves a cheerful giver. So we know the hard attitude. Not under duress. Not sorrowfully, but cheerfully. You've probably heard a description of this text. It comes from the Greek word cheerful, 
Hilaron, we give, you know, give hilariously, some will say. I don't, I don't think you are to present your tithe laughing your head off. It was some kind of silly affair. No, but that is give with great joy. Give with a happy heart because you are giving in light of God's generosity towards you. So the contrast here is not between command and suggestion. It is between giving cheerfully and giving begrudgingly. It doesn't mean you're, if you give faithfully, you're going to be rich beyond measure. It doesn't mean that at some point it's not going to hurt to give. Sometimes that is the case. But there are some, there are some of you in here, I am glad to say, who give faithfully. There are some of you in here who, who have, I've heard it said that you would, you would sooner live under a bridge than not give your tithe. I think that's very noble. I think that's very faithful. Please don't, if you're, if you're on the verge of living under a bridge, please come talk to Jeremy or myself so that you're not living under a bridge. Thought I'd throw that out there. But I thought it would help, kind of running out of time here, but I did want to go over some, some uh, Old Testament parallels because I think this concept of sowing and reaping, is that's not a New Testament idea either. It comes from the Old Testament as well. And I think if we see the continuity between old and new here, we can further galvanize our view of what it means to give and what it means to tithe. And so, from Proverbs 22.9, again, it's Proverbs. Proverbs, not promises, as the saying goes. But whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. Now, I know we like to say it's Proverbs, or, well, that's Old Testament. Okay. But you know what Proverbs also says? It's a verse we love to quote. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths and He will make your path straight. That's Old Testament! right? So the Lord's not going to direct my path by acknowledging Him in all my ways? He's not going to make my path straight? Are you going to say that to the Lord? Well, if you're not, then why not? You're still going to affirm that about Him even though you're a New Testament Christian. So why should we put aside the Proverbs that talk about money and prosperity and generosity. Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, and you will be blessed. It is a blessing, right? Tithing is the unexpected blessing. We should start seeing it as that. He will be blessed for he shares his bread with the poor, right? And that continues on into the New Testament. Giving to those who have none. Being able to provide for those who can't provide for themselves. As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. This might be the, the passage that Paul has in mind. That's from Job 4.8. And I bring that up to say Job was pre-Mosaic law. Maybe even written before Genesis, some think. But that principle still stands. Those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Would it stand to reason that those who plow righteousness and reap blessing and, 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 and sow blessing reap the same? I mean, can we conclude that? There is a blessing in giving. And when we give, we find that the Lord provides for our every need. I mean, look at how Paul concludes. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. This is an encouragement to those who struggle to make ends meet, but who still want to give, who still want to tithe to the church. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. God's generosity is a, an expression, an outward expression of His righteousness. And we see the consequence of a lack of generosity. Listen to Haggai 1. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the people say, the people, this people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Therefore says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Right? Got a, I burned a hole in my pocket. That's where this comes from. Saying here, the house of the Lord lies in ruins. Speaks to your priorities, O people of Israel. What are your priorities? We, we, we view that sad historical moment where 
the, the temple is desolate. The, the priests are in rags. Those who work for the Lord are not provided for. They go hungry. Do not be deceived, Jesus says. God is not mocked. Sorry, escalations. Not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that which he also will reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Proverbs 19.17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Are we going to say amen and hallelujah? That's true of the Lord today as it was yesterday. Or should we say that's the Old Testament? Like, do you not want these things to be true? That's, that's, that's Old Testament. But listen to what the Word says. Whoever is generous to the Lord lends, generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his, for his deed. It is clear that there is a link between what we give and how we are blessed. And let us not deny that truth. Let us not be stingy and relegate this to the Old Testament. Another passage to consider. Another good parallel. It's the one we all know and love. The one we're really offended by. It comes from Malachi 3, 10-12. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. I mean, are we, are we to suppose reading a text like this, even though he's talking to Israel, that the character and nature of God have changed in regard to his people? Like if, as the church, we're stingy, we refuse to indulge in grace giving? Are we to think that God is just going to bless us exceedingly abundantly if we have sown sparingly, if we have sown in a stingy manner? And if we, in turn... Bless, we bring our tithes faithfully, we give to the work of the ministry, we provide for those, we provide for our ministers and we provide for the poor and we're investing in one another. Will God disregard that and not bless us? What are we to think of God? Does grace just flatten all of this? That's what I want to challenge your thinking this morning. Or does grace give us a a higher, more exalted calling to giving and generosity, especially when it pertains to matters of the kingdom? But he says, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. We should desire God's blessing. We should understand that, I think it built in, into this passage, is the fact that we cannot outgive God. A God who loves to bless us. A God who is generous to us. So why should we fail to be generous? I think it makes total sense. Let us bless in accordance with how God has blessed us. Let us not sow sparingly and reap sparingly. Let us sow bountifully and reap bountifully. Let us not rob God as the Lord tells the people in Malachi. I want you to consider this. Whether or not you are robbing God this morning. What if your financial situation is perpetually dire because you are not rich toward God and do not give Him the first fruits? of your harvest, as the Proverbs say. Consider also that some of these things are not mentioned explicitly in the New Testament because their continuity is already assumed by the biblical writer and even perhaps the audience. Think about this. The New Covenant community is the true Israel. When they are gathered after the day of Pentecost, being baptized church members, who were mostly Jews, do we read about them standing around debating where their tithes and offerings go? No, they brought them to the congregation. They still understood that there was an obligation to give and to give generously. And even though we don't have an exact number on it, we know that they gave out of their abundance. And they gave not considering their own belongings to be theirs. We do well to consider that. And just to close, if God says to tithe, in the Old Testament, he determines 10%. It is reasonable. Is it reasonable to surmise that 10% is a baseline for giving? Blessings of tithing. God is honored by our giving, first of all. Secondly, the church expresses and magnifies the grace of God in its generosity. That's the second thing. Thirdly, your pastors, your elders are taken care of. 
If we are indeed worthy of double honor in the church tithes, we can make our living by the gospel. Elders who rule well, Paul tells Timothy, are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Fourthly, the church, and I think this is huge. This is big picture stuff, so listen well. The church finally, through its tithes, because statistically, if the church actually tithed, we would have an abundance of tens of billions of dollars a year in the United States. The church can finally take back responsibility for care of widows and orphans from the state. That's how the state plays God. It provides for those that the church is supposed to care for. And if the church gave generously, taking back that responsibility would speak volumes. And I think it would be well managed. And what this says is that God is God and not the state. God takes care of His own through people in the expression of pure and undefiled religion. I think that is something that the church does not connect with tithing, is the church's authority to receive those tithes and offerings, and the church's authority and calling to minister to the poor and destitute. I mean, I think we we are a long ways away from it, but at some point, guys, it has to start, and it starts with us. It starts with the church today to give generously, to give what God commands of us, and to give with a joyous heart that anticipates great spiritual fruit, a great spiritual harvest. I am so sick and tired of seeing the government, state or federal, reapportion wealth and give it and invest in godless, absolutely godless and antichrist causes. But shall we consider that that happens because the church has shirked its responsibility, because the church has become stingy, and I will, and I will go on out on a limb and say this, perhaps this is God's hand of discipline upon the church for failing to give. That we are now going to be refined and tested and even persecuted by this false God called the state. And so that's the call to repent as far as it concerns our giving. The state is a false god. The state has no business redistributing accumulated wealth. Because it's not the state's money. It's God's money. It's God's resources. And we are God's stewards. Why should we continue to sin against God and sin against His people by withholding our tithes and offerings? Consider the blessing that we are missing out on by withholding what is due to the Lord and being able to be a generous blessing in turn to His people and even to those who do not know Him. So that is a very odd place to end, but, uh, but there you have it. Um, trying to pack in a lot here and, of course, missing some, I think, important points. But I just want us as a church to consider the, uh, the validity of the tithe the validity of the fact that this is not a suggestion, but a moral and binding command upon the people of God to give and to give generously. So that is what I will say this morning. So let us pray together. Father, thank you again for your love and your faithfulness to us. And, and I, do, uh, I do ask, Lord, that if there's anything, probably did so, but left out some important stuff, some key verses. But um, Lord, you, you ultimately instruct us. And I pray that... Uh, what went forward this morning can be uh, unpacked even further, understood clearly, Lord, that, um, that we would be of one accord in this especially, but there would be no division among us that as, we, as we come to You and we're able to give our uh, tithes with You, that we would give resolutely, committedly, Lord, that we would understand that when we give, even though, that it's, even though it's difficult, we understand it, it can, it's, especially in this day and age, it is hard with all of the other financial obligations we have and with, with, uh, with basically government-mandated theft um, despoiling us of our, of our work and of our, of our crop, Lord, we can only cry out to You, but we must cry out with repentance, especially if we are among those who have robbed You and who have not given heed to Your Word where we have failed, we have failed to give We have failed to give generously. We have failed to understand, Lord, that You are the owner of everything and that maybe we have been terrible stewards of all that You own and all that You have given us to manage.
Lord, I, I do. I, 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 as much as I want to preach these things with boldness, I want to preach them humbly. Um, we are all dependent upon You. We are all dependent on Your provision. I do pray, God, that You would, that you would change the heart of this church if it needs changing. That we, would, that we would put our hand to the plow and that we would work and that we would give our first fruits to You to give it joyfully. Even though You command us to do so, that we give it joyfully to You, anticipating a mighty work that You will do among us and in our community. Pray, Lord, that we would give in faith, give trusting You for every provision. That You will can, when we give, we, we understand, Lord, we are at Your mercy. Uh, when, when we give, we understand that You must supply all of our needs, but as You promise in Your Word, You will supply all of our needs according to Your riches and glory, which is in Christ Jesus. And those are abundant riches. And that is abundant glory. Lord, and we want to be blessed, and we want to be a blessing to others, so please change our hearts where necessary. And Lord, I do pray a special blessing upon those who are here this morning, who do tithe, who do give abundantly, who are generous, who see their money is not their own, but yours. I pray that you would multiply what they, what they make. Pray that you would continue to bless them, but their, but their joy and their pocketbook would, would increase so they can continue to enjoy uh, investing in the work of your kingdom. Lord, anything I left out, um, I pray that it would be so, that we would pray in accordance with your will. We thank you for all that you have done, and we thank you for your generosity toward us, mostly uh, through Christ, our Savior and our Lord. In his precious name we pray, amen.